0: What was the reason for going back to have the baby? Was it medical care, just issues of citizenship or concerns? What, what, what was the concern?
1: So my wife had originally planned on having the baby in Peru, and she'd found a, a doctor who had been trained in the U.S. and was, was very competent. She really liked him. Um, but when we finally got down to see the hospital, the level of like nursing care and technology, and, they, and said basically, if something goes wrong, um, uh, the ability to deal with it down here may not be as well. And then Cheryl green was the, she was the nurse practitioner down there at the time. She said, Hey, listen, we, we recommend that you go back. Um, and not only that will pay for you to go back and have the baby. So my, uh, my in-laws were living up in Vermont, running a country store up in Stowe, Vermont at the time. And my, uh, my oldest daughter is a Vermont woodchuck now. So she's born in born in Vermont.
0: I spoke at a conference up in Vermont one time, and I flew in, and I'm driving up there, and I stop at this little uh, country store. I mean, it's beautiful up there, obviously. And I I was laughing. Somebody said, what are you laughing about? I turned around, and I saw this T-shirt, and it had a picture of a maple tree on there, and it said, yeah, I'd tap that. (laughs)
1: <laughs> yeah i started yeah. laughing it well funny. you're talking about a land where there are more cows than there are people right so
0: yes there the, that's uh, true. but man beautiful spoke out at, at this place that was next to a ski resort and it just i mean just beautiful up there well so let's talk about that so they come back but um let's talk about your work down then um how does you had culture shock going to uh, ohio was there a culture shock in peru or did that were you more aligned with what was going on down there
1: um so, so I had done uh, a crash course in Spanish. Uh, the government was very generous and gave me 10 weeks of, uh, of Spanish language training, and I didn't really have to do any other work. So it was six hours a day of, of Spanish language training and three hours of homework. And then when I wasn't doing that, I was like sort of trying to assimilate and learn as much as I could about Peruvian culture and the Peruvian drug trafficking scene and that sort of thing. Um, and even with all of the lead in time and the preparation i was it was shocking when when you arrived the The disparity between the wealth uh that was there in the neighborhood where I lived and the poverty uh in much of the country just was something I had never seen before um I'd never really been outside of the country before i mean other than Canada or you know um and it's uh you know the Atacama Desert that runs along the the coast where Lima is is one of the driest in the world and you know you get a f- fraction of an inch of rain a year over there they have something called garua where the the rain just sort of hangs in the air so the whole place is it looks like a cat litter box you know sand everywhere uh and if if they don't irrigate you don't really have a whole lot of Foliage, and yet I live in this place uh, called Casuarinas, which is on these beautiful slopes and hills, and it's all irrigated with palm trees and swimming pools and and these big, luxurious homes. Uh, and as it turns out, my house overlooks the house of a guy named Tito Lopez Paredes, who's one of the biggest drug dealers <laughs> in in uh, in all of Peru. His family lived there. As it turns out, he didn't spend much time with his family. But, you know, you're living like that, and then you look off into the hills, and they had something called pueblos jóvenes, which basically means young towns. And people were living in structures that were made out of woven reed mats um, that often didn't even have a a roof on them because they didn't get enough rain that that was a problem. It was just like privacy walls on the outside they would sink a well for the community, but they didn't have running water in their house. And they might have, uh, you know, strung up some wires enough to like hang a naked light bulb, you know, cooking on a propane stove. It was, it was remarkable, the disparity. I'd never seen anything like that. And it was, uh, it was definitely a culture shock.
2: It was, it was the same way in Columbia when we got there. There was no middle class. It was either a have or a have not type situation.
0: Unbelievable. Now, was your at the time when they put you in that house? Were you aware that the biggest dope dealer, you know, would live right down the street from you? Or Was that something you found out about later?
1: Uh, I found out much later about that when we heard like gunshots, you know, uh, and, and that uh, turned and out to be this is your captain. Just,
0: this is your first indication <laughs> shit's about to happen. Gunfire.
1: <laughs> well, you know, the, everybody had armed guards uh, in their place, and the other thing they had was roof dogs, so that you would get these these real nasty dogs and they lived on the roof so the burglars couldn't climb the fence or drop on there. And they had, you know, vicious dogs on the roof that they would give just enough food and water to keep them alive. But you didn't want to go wandering into somebody's house or, you know, uninvited. You get yourself torn up pretty good.
2: That's the first time I ever heard of that.
1: Yeah, 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 no, that was a big thing there. (laughs) Roof dogs, Peruvian roof dogs. And then the worst thing was the cars. So, uh, it was so difficult to earn enough money to buy a car that if you owned a car, you, f- you thought you owned the road as well. And it, <laughs> if your horn didn't work, the car was not serviceable. You couldn't drive it because the horn had to be going at all times while you're driving. Just crazy. You're talking about Orlando. <laughs> <laughs> that or New York. That sounds like New York. Out of my
0: way. Out of my way.
1: Yeah, no, it's... it's uh, uh. It was thrilling, and uh, you know, at the at the time, we had Operation Snowcap had just kicked off. So um, that was an operation that was geared towards going to the source of the cocaine trade. Of course, Peru, Bolivia, and, and Colombia were the were the uh, ground zero for for the global cocaine trade, and uh, hey, so they Tony? put us.
0: Talk about that for a second, too, because we were t- talking about some other folks and talking about um, – uh, actually, with one of our guys, too. We interviewed the, the son of the Cali cartel leader. Um, we talked to William Rodriguez. Um, or William, what, 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 yeah. Yeah, yeah. Um, But it, it's interesting, too, because people think everything emanated out of Colombia, but you got to have the pace first. got to have the other stuff that gets right. going into there, right? So talk, talk about that a little bit. Set the stage for what it really means when you got the global cocaine trade. That's why Peru, places like that, are so important.
1: Yeah, so circa 1987, when we started this operation, um, Peru was actually the the single largest source for the raw material, the coca paste, and I'll explain what that means. Um, even bigger than Colombia, what was happening was there's a there's a shrub. It basically looks like the kind of shrub you would plant along your house uh, that produces a leaf, the coca leaf, and then that leaf is um, is call it a maceration pit, but it's basically ground up. Uh, put some fuel in there and float the the alkaloid out, and then it, it's um, it's washed in a process to turn it from coca paste to cocaine base. And then the base was all flown off to Colombia, where these labs would refine it into cocaine hydrochloride, the the drug. Of choice for a lot of addicts that were using it in the United States, but the, the actual raw material, most of it at that point, was coming out of Peru. And um, hey, Tony, real quick, why? Just out of
0: curiosity, because we actually, when we had Michelle Linhart on, one of her big cases was a huge paste dealer, I think, out of that area. But why didn't? Was it just because of the structure of the way the cartels work? Why didn't? Why didn't Peru just get an idea, go, hey, look, we got the materials here. Why don't we just take the materials, produce our own cocaine, and cut the Colombians out?
1: Yeah. So, um, the bottom, so she was working on a case in Bolivia at the time. I remember this case cause I was, the, I later went on to run the office in Bolivia, but, um, the, the production of cocaine is extraordinarily labor intensive. Like nobody who had other options would for the money that they make at that part of the distribution chain would do the work required to uh to harvest coca plants and turn those leaves into coca paste if you had any other way to make money. It you know, we talk about like a you know, this multi-billion dollar global industry that generates huge amounts of money, but at the bottom of the of the period, uh, pyramid the the campesinos who are cultivating the coca plant, picking the leaves, drying the leaves, hauling them to a maceration pit, decantation pit and then trying to like just turn this into a paste to do it. They're earning nothing. I mean at the time back then, I think it, they were earning uh 4 to 600 dollars a kilo for coca paste uh and it took 7 kilos of coca paste to make 1 kilo of cocaine. So, you know, y- they were not making the millions of dollars. They weren't living the, the, uh, the, the Don Johnson, Miami Vice lifestyle down there. These people were working really physically demanding jobs in, in terrible places um, to eke out a subsistence that, you know. Um, and so it was really driven as much, well, two things, geography. Um and poverty so the the woody shrub that produces the the coca plant uh, the coca leaf for cocaine will grow in a lot of places, but it will only produce um, high levels of athroxylin coca the the alkaloid that they make cocaine from if it 's got altitude and um, and uh, what is it it's, it's Altitude, certain amount of precipitation uh, in the year, and soil types, and and the ideal locations for that are along the the eastern slope of the Andes, where um, you know the weather comes in and it dumps a lot of rain, but you're up at high elevations and it's got good drainage, and so it not only grows the coca leaf, but it it grows very high concentrations of the of the alkaloid that you need to make the cocaine um and so they didn't really have sophisticated traffickers back in those days in Peru anyway who were capable of like managing the international markets and understood how to refine this and get it to market all they were doing is producing the raw materials to somebody else that was was willing to buy them and and yet uh when i got there in 87 we would we would fly over the mountains over the andes land in a in a little place called tingo maria and then jump on the helicopters and fly up the the alto Huayaga valley and for an hour to an hour and a half flight there was no point no point for an hour and a half where you couldn't look out of the helicopter in any direction and see coca under cultivation I mean, I, it was um, for somebody who had been buying it by the ounce, and you know, thrilled when you seized a, a kilo. It's like, holy crap, we are—you know—we're up against something that I really had not understood until I went down there. This is the magnitude of the problem. The fact that the people who were on the on the ground level, these guys weren't really drug dealers; they were just trying to eke out a living and they you know th- there are these economic forces in play that most people just didn't understand at all
2: well not to mention if if they refused to grow the coca plant there would be retaliation against them and their families i mean there's yeah, a major threat absolutely them.
0: that's what i was going to ask about is uh, we know colombia was violent we know mexico's violent those places like that how violent was it in peru considering that was the the start of the stream uh, for, and, and actually what you're describing, too, almost sounds like uh, we went to a wine tasting here a while back. I actually had a kid out of Italy. His family has, you know, some vineyards. And it's amazing what you say because the, the same grape grown in two different locations, that's like 300 meters apart because one's a little higher in altitude, different sun. The wine was completely different. I mean, it's, it's amazing how little change in altitude or, or temperature or precipitation changes, you know, the makeup of this. But how violent were things, uh, you know, in Peru?
1: Very. So you had a, you had a, the confluence of a couple of things. So you had the, the drug problem that I've discussed sort of in general terms, but then you also had a major insurgency going on. Uh, this, this organization called Sendero Luminoso or the Shining Path, uh, were very active in the Alto Huayaga Valley and, uh, their, their claim to, or their, their complaint was that once you got outside of the the capital, right? There were no services to the people, but uh, but the government really uh, was very punitive in a lot of ways, and and in some in some respects they weren't wrong, but it was a full blown armed struggle by the time we got there. In fact, it's a kind of a sad story, but not a not a um, not as funny as I thought it was once, but we're, we're sitting down there in Tingo Maria before we, we built the base camp up in Santa Lucia. And, uh, it's this tourist hotel with corrugated metal, you know, uh, porch and kind of a lovely place. We're out having breakfast. Um, and, uh, we get called that one of the, one of the patrols that we're working with had been ambushed and we got a scramble. So we, run across the street to the 64th Comandancia, jump on the helicopters and go out. And, um, you know, we get out there and people are still dying. I mean, the, the engagement is over, but there are people who are still bleeding out and the place had been shot up and they, the patrol had been ambushed by Sendero Luminoso. And um, we end up coming back after many, many hours. And we're, now we're back in the same hotel and we're sitting on the porch and we're finally going to have a meal. And a, there's a big avocado tree out there, and an avocado hit that corrugated metal roof, and everybody jumps up. <laughs> you know, we we hadn't realized how tense we were, but we were ready to make 9-millimeter guacamole. You know, it's... Uh, this, this
0: <laughs> I've never had 9-millimeter guacamole. I can only imagine... Um... <laughs> It's heavy and lead. If you yeah, it's, yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's crunchy. Yeah, <laughs> uh, but but you know, think about that though too. It's like any, anything. I tell you, uh, the area I live in out here, Murph, you know this too. You traders bastard, until you moved. But um, a lot of law enforcement out here, but military and stuff. And there's some people have no uh, awareness of their surroundings. Finally, had to have a discussion with the lawn service because they they would wait. One of the neighbors out here uses them. They would wait till seven o'clock in the morning, which is kind of the HOA rules. But then they would just let the trailer gate on that thing fall down. And I, it's, it sounds like a fricking either grenade going off or a gunshot going off. I finally went out and talked and said, by the way, my neighbor, two doors up secret service, uh, presidential protective detail. said, you may want to rethink about just letting that thing whack open and slam. So, uh, but Did I they listen? see how, what's that? Did they listen? Yeah. Yeah. This next time they showed up, my wife's going, I didn't hear it. And it's good. Yeah.
2: Why would you was, go out was, there and talk to him with a shotgun in your hand? It makes a lot of difference, does it? Well,
0: I was cleaning. I was cleaning my AR-15 with my bandolero, you know, and all my <laughs> no, absolutely, yeah, uh, night vision goggles. But, but, but that's interesting. So let's let's talk about that. How does that wrap into then? Was this guy that was your neighbor? What was he like? You say was he involved in that part of the trade? Then was he running a lot of those operations?
1: He was. So, uh, Tito Lopez Paredes and another guy named Vaticano. Um, Provided the key infrastructure to fly the coca paste from Peru into Colombia, um, where it was sold. And, and of course, the value jumped up exponentially the further you got it north on the ladder going up towards the US. Um, and um, yeah, I, I mean, these guys were um, not engaged in distribution of cocaine in the united states they they weren't even at the time really very active in uh in the production of cocaine hydrochloride it was simply like taking this commodity that was valuable and moving it to another place what was even more valuable and, and making the vig on this stuff and so um Smoking you know.
0: smoking like a true mafia guy, making the VIG. <laughs> <laughs> hey, but but yeah. how do you how do you make a case against somebody who's taking product out of one country that the US has no jurisdiction in, taking it to another country that the U.S. has no jurisdiction in, and that gets embedded into the, into the product, you know, the paste. Is that part of a conspiracy? I mean, how do you how do you go back and indict these folks? Uh, do you have to prove certain kinds of knowledge? I'm saying this more for a lot of people because, you know, we did a deep dive on a lot of things, but this is one of the first times we've really done a deep dive around just the, the, the creation of it. I didn't realize it was seven kilos of paste to make one kilo. Michelle may have said that, but you think about the number of people, how time intensive it is by the time. That kilo makes it to the United States. What's the markup on that for even for them to make you know money on it? So that's why I'm asking. How do you how do you go about making a case against somebody who's only making the paste?
1: Yeah. So um, it wasn't until much later, uh, Congressman by the name of Henry Hyde uh, helped New York, change, right? Yeah. The the Hyde Amendment um, basically gave us the tools to. Charge people who engaged uh, in activity extraterritorially, but but back in those days in uh, in sort of the eighty seven timeframe when we were there, this was really more about trying to cripple the industry than it was to get them prosecuted in the U.S. And so uh, this is where I really started doing a lot of work with the U.S. intelligence community. Um, and I'll you know what I can talk about still here is you know we were. Intercepting communications. Uh, these people were based out in the jungles, and so there was a lot of communication that went over U.S. radios and and some satellite phones were just starting to to kind of come on board. Um, Sounds like centrist bike
0: Murph a little bit. You know, the first capabilities integration group out of the uh, U.S. military. A little bit. That's that. That's all public knowledge, folks. Nothing classified there. That's you. You can find that on the interwebs.
1: Yeah, no, we, we worked with the. Uh, with Seventh Group Special Forces were were based down there. There, there was a, it was an interesting cauldron of uh, you know the alphabet soup down there, all trying to look at this problem from different vantage points. Um, we well, you, you have know, to answer one, one
0: question though. The chief of station for CIA was it Bob, Paul, or Mike?
1: <laughs> no, Joe. Joe. And, uh, oh, there's a it, new one, Joe. It, it, yeah. And Joe ended up leaving in a uh, in a big problem. Um uh, just as I was getting down there. And then we ended up with a uh, sort of more enlightened leadership. Let me just put it that way, where we, um, we ended up doing a lot more things together after that. But, uh, yeah, there were, there were some, mm-hmm. there was quite a shakeup just as I got there. And I'm not sure that I still know all of the details, but I, I know enough of them to know that it was probably a good thing that he moved <laughs> along. So
0: uh, yeah.
2: Sounds familiar.
1: Yeah. Yeah. So, uh, but, but continue on from that.
0: So, cause that makes sense too, when you can't at that point, when you can't indict, you know, create cases, then disruption, you know, you've got to disrupt the supply chain.
1: And, and that's really what it was about. Uh, as we tried to focus in on something, you know, you, you think about it, if, if you're trying to kill, just I'm using an analogy here, obviously not literally kill, but if you're trying to kill somebody, right, you could, Starve them; it would take weeks. If you tried to sort of dehydrate them, and you know that would take days. But if you cut off the oxygen, right, they're, they're dead in a matter of minutes. And so, uh, ultimately, what that led us to was a strategy over there in the jungle, where you know there's no way that we can eradicate all of this cocaine, uh, all of the coca that's being cultivated. Even though State Department was. You know, dead set on on this huge eradication effort. But where our focus uh, was, was there are certain precursor chemicals that are necessary to take this leaf and convert it into a a product that could then be shipped to move it over. And all the product, all the precursor chemicals that you need to do that come from someplace else. There's none of it that was produced in the jungles themselves. So, how do we? identify interdict track uh this stuff and uh, and try and cut off the lifeblood that was going out to these these uh coca paste production facilities and the cocaine based laboratories and as it turned out the potassium permanganate which they used to sort of filter and clean the uh the coca uh, and get it into shape where, where it could be transported in you know cuz this is Wait for value, right? They got to fly it out of the jungle. And one of the things that the uh, that the State Department and others learned with the the U.S. Agency for International Development trying to create alternative crops for these people to do something is yeah. But the narcos bring in all the raw materials, they bring in the transportation network, they pay cash on the barrelhead, and there's nothing else out there that that can compete, right? So if you want to make it competitive to, to do some legitimate crop, then you have to drive up the cost of being en- engaged in the coca traffic. Part of that is exposing some people to the risk of criminal prosecution, but that wasn't hugely uh, likely just given the numbers and the odds and whatever else was out there, but we could drive up the cost by, you know, take a thermite grenade and burn up their generators crater their airstrips, blow up the laboratories, uh take you know shipments of precursor chemicals that were worth tens of thousands of dollars and blow them up and while it in the global scheme of things that didn't uh, affect a lot of people at the bottom of the pyramid where people are still living hand to mouth, you take ten thousand dollars of capital out of somebody's hands um, you know now all of a sudden growing macadamia nuts you know, looks a little more attractive. and I don't have the police breathing down my neck and that sort of thing. So Well you
0: mentioned that you mentioned that you could use thermite grenades and do are you saying you did use thermite grenades and crater runways or are you just talking hypothetically there, Chief? Oh
1: no, no. We um we blew a lot of stuff up when we were down there. Uh
0: now that had to be fun though.
1: That was that was very fun. So uh funny story about that. The um Again, I don't know why I end up in these little offices, but I was I was number eight in in the Lima office when I get down there, an eight-man office. And uh at the time Pete Reef is the country attache. So Pete goes out for his his uh last tour. He's been selected to move on, and we're gonna have a new country attache out there. And he goes out for his last operation in the jungle, um, just as I'm getting down there. Now my Spanish is nowhere near as good as it is today at the time. And I could barely find my way to the embassy from a parking lot where the DEA cars were parked. And uh, he goes out with the the head of the Guardia Civil, uh, Juan Zarate Gambini, he's the general in charge, right? And they're out cratering airstrips, right? They're blowing up these selectively blowing up airstrips that have been used for drug offloads and then laying in ambush on other ones uh, waiting for the planes to come in. Anyway, they, um, they land in a – they see what looks like an offload going on near Tokachi, and they land the helicopter to dispatch some, some troops, but the, the helicopter is still loaded up with dynamite to crater the airstrips. And it gets hit by an RPG from the, um, from oh. the Sendero Luminoso guys in Tokachi, blows it up, kills the, the door gunner and the co-pilot, and Pete reef and general Zalate and a bunch of others escape into the countryside. And, uh, and so now I'm like one of four people in the office that's still there. Cause it's summer and people have taken summer vacations and I'm leading a rescue operation and I could barely find the embassy from the parking lot. Right. And <laughs> going across to try and bring these guys back. And, you know, long story short is, um, they survive and we bring them back and, um, Pete reef writes this cable. That, yeah. That's a whole different story, but general Zarate, uh, the guy who's in charge and I got to know each other then. And this, this really sort of set the tone for my law enforcement career later on. So I'm, I'm, um, waiting over at their office to meet with one of the majors or something over there. And Zalate comes walking in and sees me, he says, what are you doing waiting down here? I said, well, I'm just here to see major Molina. No, no, no. Come on up with me. Right. And, and um, so it turns out he was very grateful that, you know, that we came in and saved him and brought him back. And uh, so uh, I'm asking to do something, and I'm, you know, it's not my country, so I'm, I'm being very polite. He says, Tony, listen, to your friends, anything is possible. The rules, those are for, that's for somebody else, <laughs> right? I <laughs> oh, love it. And, and at that point, a, a light bulb went off and said, wait a minute. Personal relationship to these guys, I got it. Yeah. I can figure this out. It's only I mean, taken me the seven British years. Guy. Yeah, I'm figuring this <laughs> out.
2: But you know, <laughs> you I, know I, and not to, to toot the DEA horn here, but I'm going to anyway. That's what I love about DEA. Here you are. You know, you uh, you know, for lack of better words, you don't know your butt from a hole in the ground there because you're brand new in country. But you did what you had to do, and that I, you know, in my opinion, that's what separates us from some of the other agencies at times. When when there's a crisis, you step up and you take care of business.
0: You know what? I'm more shocked about this story is that that RPG didn't set off the dynamite. It did. It did. It oh, blew I, up the. I'm heli- su- oh, I th- I'm surprised then that the they were in the air
1: when that happened. No, no, they had landed the helicopter. Oh, oh I'm on, sorry. Okay. On, the, on the runway in Tokachi because there was an offload. They saw a plane uh, mm. trying to offload cocaine onto the thing. Oh my so
0: god! Did I miss that? I'm thinking if they survived a mid-air strike with an RPG, that's. I mean, that's amazing.
1: No, were, uh, the helicopter was on the ground, and the, there was a co-pilot and a door gunner still in it, and everybody else had left the helicopter to go pursue the trucks that were mm-hmm. bringing the cocaine to this plane. And when the RPG hit, it did blow up the helicopter. The helicopter and the, and the people who were unfortunate enough to still be in it are, are dead yeah. and gone. Yeah. And-
0: oh. So whatever happened with this Kingpin, let's bring this to a close, because I want to talk about um, Willie Falcone and the Magluta gut dudes.
1: Yeah, so, uh, I mean, ultimately, we, we, um, we learned that Vaticano is killed. Uh, you know, he, he is, um, he's brought to justice n- not by the forces of law and order, but by his competitors and is murdered uh, in a sort of a drug deal gone bad between him and the Colombians out in, uh, in the area of Iquitos up on the border with, with Colombia. Uh, that's, that's really what happens. And Tito Lopez Paredes um, ultimately gets arrested and charged in Peru. Uh, but then that's a whole other mess. That's back in the days of Fujimori and, uh, you know, the, the case, you know, gets botched up a bunch of ways. He spends a lot of time in pretrial detention, but then ultimately is released. So, and, and there's, you know, there's rumors as to whether money exchanged hands for the case to get botched and all that kind of stuff. And I, I don't have an opinion cause I'm not close enough to the, uh, to the information or wasn't close enough to the information to know what happened. But it was, it, you know, to say that it was not an efficient above board system down there at the time would have been an, a gross understatement of the <laughs> state of play. Hmm.
0: Uh, especially avocados as weapons too, man. <laughs> I've known you could have blown up an entire hotel throwing an
1: avocado. Well, um, we, you know, those headless and handless bodies. You know, you're in the shower at the base camp, and uh, the water stops running. You come out, and we had 17 headless and handless bodies floating down the Wayaga Valley that had uh, like got into the intakes for our showers. You're in the shower, oh, and the water ain't coming through. It's because there's dead bodies in the intakes. Uh, it was a crazy time. Whew. Well,
0: there's
2: something, there's something you don't hear every day. <laughs>
0: <laughs> Honey, the sink's clogged. Yeah. There's a reason why, um, God. So, but, but you go from this now, but you go from this kind of action now, you, the next post you get right is Miami. Is that correct?
1: Yeah. So I, um,
0: now you volunteered for this or did you get assigned? Uh,
1: no, I, I wanted to go to Miami. My, my whole goal in, uh, going to Peru was to get to where the action was. And so, um, At the time they had uh, this program where you, when you applied to get promoted to group supervisor, you applied, when you applied for one job, you applied for all of them. Right. So I'm now three, I'm about seven years on the job as a working agent. I've got a score uh, that's competitive. And so I apply for a group supervisor job, but I'm rotating back from Peru uh, and I, I get, selected for the miami field division uh which is what i'd volunteered for so i'm thrilled i'm going back to miami or i'm not going back i'm going to miami and um i, I show up and the the first thing that happens is they say well you know would you mind going to fort lauderdale instead of miami Well, fort lauderdale was pretty good because it still had four enforcement groups and a diversion group and as it turned out we did most of our work down in in dade county anyway which is a source of some other issues but um, yes it was yeah (laughs) (laughs) so yeah okay fine but but then um i I, no sooner get there i guess i'm probably like two or three months in uh, the miami division and i get notified congratulations you've been selected to be a group supervisor in minneapolis minnesota Oh my God. Come on! You're hey, me, that's, right?
0: that's that's where Michelle Linhart was at before yeah. uh, before she came out. I mean, it, it's a lot of good. Hey, my my sister and brother in law live in Apple Valley, just outside Minnesota. Eh? There's some good things yeah. up there. Eh?
1: Any place where you got to live in like a hamster cage to, to stay keep from freezing to death in the wintertime is too cold for me. And it, you know, I, I did not want to go back to the Midwest.
0: You, you've already experienced Lake Effect snow. It was like ah, oh, I'm yeah. done with this. Yeah. <laughs>
1: So anyway, I was able to, to, uh, work a deal. My, you know, the sack down there, Tom cash at the time. And my ASAC basically, uh, came to an agreement that, listen, he's got a competitive score. Um, he's willing to stay here and not take the, I, I wasn't turning down a promotion, but I said, but if you'll consider me, you know, for the next vacancy that comes available down here, I, I'd rather stay. You just, paid to move all my stuff here. You paid the closing cost on my new house. You know, I'm down mm-hmm. here. My, my family's installed. I'll be a little bit patient, but I'm not turning down a promotion either. You know? So as it turned out, uh, about seven or eight months after I get to Miami, I get promoted to become a group supervisor uh, and I'm running group 23 up in Fort Lauderdale. So I, you know, I went to Fort Lauderdale as a working agent and, uh, and now I'm running a group, and, um, what happens if you turn down a promotion,
0: what does that do for you? Uh, do you ever get promoted or does it just put you out like two years or something?
1: Um, it, it makes it a lot harder. So there's a career board that I sat on for a lot of years afterwards. And there's a, I'll just say when I was there for, for seven or eight years, I was on the career board. There was a, there was a prevailing view, uh, that if you really want to be a manager, in in DEA then you had to be mobile right and if you're turning down because it wasn't your particular assignment then maybe you weren't you didn't have the stuff to be uh, a DEA manager because the idea was once once you got promoted you became an agency resource and they were going to move you where they needed you and that certainly was the case with me the the needs Mm -hmm. of the service the needs of the agency
2: what year did you get to uh, Lauderdale
1: uh, I got there in July of 1990. It was, so was Lou Perry uh, you, was the ASAC at the time. Yeah. Uh, and then Joe Salvamini came in after that to, to run the, the Fort Lauderdale district office.
2: Did you, and you mentioned uh, Jay Gregorius earlier, were, were he and uh, Harry Summers
1: in your group? Uh, so I was originally in Lou Farrow's group over in group 22. Uh, and when I took over group 23, Jay worked for me. Okay. Harry was, Harry was in group 22. Jay was in 23 with me. And I, you know, I had a whole wrecking crew of guys over there, including Dave Bora, who had the, the Falcone Magluta case. So I, I'm time. thinking
0: that there's some overlap here, Murph, right? Because when were you down in Miami? 87 to
2: 91. And that's, um, that's how I got to know Harry and Jay, who end up being, you know, lifelong friends. But You know, initially it's like, shit, here comes Fort Lauderdale again, screwing up our cases in Dade County.
0: (laughs) (laughs) That's what what I wanted to get into. You had that thing. Yeah, yeah, I know. You guys, you Fort Lauderdale people (laughs) come down here.
2: Uh, But those were two outstanding investigators, both made at SESs and, and DEA and are retired and going on to better things, bigger and better things now.
0: Well, let's let's talk about this uh in uh miami because there are a couple famous names like you said you you now are the manager you're, you're the group soup you know you you're Respond, but you have to you have to watch what goes on, build the case, and there's stuff that you say was made for TV. It was made for TV. We're talking about Willie Falcone and the Magluda brothers. I mean, just their display of wealth was so. The word is ostentatious, Murph. That means mm-hmm. like really, like in your face. Um, you know, sometimes you have to explain.
2: Here's that. Here's that sign again. You know what that means?
0: Anything more than two syllables, we got to <laughs> define for Murph. Uh, but I mean, but
2: Here, you get the, a double. <laughs>
0: yeah. One of their biggest mistakes was just being so flagrant with their wealth, with the boats and everything else. So let's let's talk about this. How did you end up, you know? Because uh, overall, you're you're managing what goes on. Yeah, I mean, you're not day to day doing the work, but I mean, you're seeing everything that's going on. Tell us about the evolution of this case.
1: Yeah. So um, I, I come in and the. Um the Isle of Man cases is just starting to wrap up, and that's a guy named Melvin Kessler who was laundering a bunch of money. And as a result of that case, they develop an informant. So Magluta and Falcone had been well-known, household names, anybody, you know, it's kind of like the Nicky Barnes of New York, right? Everybody's got some kind of claim to Falcone and Magluda. I did this, I did that. But nobody ever was able to build the case against these guys. And so, um, we developed, uh, in group 23, this informant, uh, in the, in the, uh, Melvin Kessler Isle of Man cases that puts us ultimately into this guy, Peggy, who is the, you know, one of the Falcone Magluta's biggest guys. Um, and we flipped this guy and start building a historical conspiracy case. So our work is not really chasing these guys down in real time while they're, you know, running loads with fast boats, um, you know, from South America into South Florida, but it's, it's rather like taking this insider story and then gathering up documentary evidence and, and all kinds of other Wiretaps and things that have been done, and try and put together the pieces so that we could show that there was this ongoing, continuing criminal enterprise and a conspiracy and agreement among and between people to engage in this criminal activity, and then link it with the seizures that had actually happened, and the rest to prove the case. So it's it's largely a paper case uh, to do, and this is all going on at the background while we've got a million other cases going at the same time. So we basically had one agent who was working this case full-time, a guy named Dave Bora, and then the case becomes so big, we do some document search warrants. The Fort Lauderdale District Office had one evidence room for the entire district, so three enforcement groups, a diversion group, and the West Palm Beach Resident Office had one room for all the evidence there, and then we had one room for this case. 'Cause we ended up doing search warrants and we had like four hundred thousand documents that we got on search warrants and a bunch of other things that needed to now be gone through and well, it was crazy. in those days
0: before you had all this technology like scanning, you know, optical character recognition, being able to digitize everything, how did you it? Ha- I mean, I'm thinking back, you're thinking back going, Geez, 20 years old, I'm handling all of this evidence. Here I am again, going through papers and documents and everything.
1: So that was right at the front end of optical character recognition. And we actually, we were um, one of the first cases where they actually did that. They came in and bait stamped all the documents and scanned them in. And it was a, it was a far cry from what you have today, but um we did get some document management in there, but just trying to keep track of all of this, this evidence and then interviewing the witnesses. But th- the case really gets interesting uh when we, we start flipping a couple of people, and now it becomes known um, that, hey, this is this is more than just sort of passing interest. Somebody is, like, really dialing down on us. And all of a sudden, our witnesses, we had over the course of the investigation, seven witnesses murdered, right? Um, you know, mm-hmm. you had Lazaro Diaz, uh, he's taking his kid to school, and he's driving his kid to school, and the tire on his Car, they'd let the air out goes flat. So he's he's got his car up on Jack's changing the tire when they drive by and machine gun him to death, you know, uh changing the tire on his car. Uh Bernie Gonzalez, you know, his car gets blown up in a garage in Miami. Um, you know, this was just it was the kind of stuff you you think that they would be making up and it was over-dramatized on TV, but it was happening in real life. Um, and then you know, uh, we, uh, I talked about like the differences in the amount of crime. So we took this dry conspiracy, well, not a dry conspiracy. We took a historical conspiracy that had a bunch of existing seizures, developed a bunch of witnesses, and then we, and then we turned it into a proactive case. And we went to uh, a residence in Coconut Creek, Florida, and took 3,800 kilos of cocaine out of the rafters of a, of a house in Coconut Creek that belonged to Falcone and Magluda.
0: Hey, you know, Tony, real
1: quick, before we dive
0: into that, go back to the witnesses for a second. How were they identifying the witnesses? Because, you know, most of the time you're trying to keep this stuff, you know, on, on the QT. You don't want anybody to know, was there any kind of a leak or was there um, a bribery? I mean, I'm not saying that there was, I'm just saying, how did they, Did just through the way they found out, how did they go about finding out about these witnesses and having them whacked?
1: Well, at, at one point, the defense attorneys, so they had, it was, uh, this, this is further along down in the case, but, um, the defense attorneys were some of the finest criminal defense attorneys, not fine people, but effective (laughs) criminal defense attorneys As Tom Cash used to say, you got, you got criminal attorneys and attorney criminals. Uh, and these guys were a mix of both. Right. But the, um, they they took the list of all the people that we were talking to, and they published it in a newsletter that they sent out to all the prisons, and basically said, you know, DEA is trying to look for these people. Do you know anything about you know? Uh, and so they they themselves, the criminal defense bar, published the names of all the people that they had gotten from pretrial discovery uh, to everybody out there, and sort of put it put it into the world. That these people were cooperating in our case, and that that basically made it much harder for us to prove who actually was killing these people as they're going through. But they had smuggled cell phones and at one point a weapon into MCC Miami. Uh, in this case, the um, it was, I mean, it's just it was insanity. It, uh, it was a made so, for TV motion So these attorneys
0: picture. published the witnesses because they know exactly I mean you know what's going to happen you're dealing with Magluda oh, yeah. Falcone you put a name out there you've just marked them
1: Oh absolutely there was there was no question about this and I mean it's just one more of the elements in this case I mean it uh as it turns out we did a 6 month trial so so we end up locating Magluda and Falcone um we we working with the U.S. Marshall Service, pin them down, uh La Island, uh out in Biscayne Bay is where Magluda was, and then Falcone was over on Star Island, both in these like fancy houses, but with you know open water access and boats. Um and we, we lock these guys up. So we go in there just as sort of an aside. Uh you talk about ostentatious wealth, right? Um we go in to do the search warrant. And there was kilo ingots of solid gold that were strewn around the house as paperweights to keep the papers from blowing away with the the fans. His wife's travel jewelry, just like, you know, she didn't, Alina didn't stay there that often, but her travel jewelry was worth more than a half a million dollars, her little travel bag. Um, (coughs) They had, you know, when all was said and done, they owned, condo buildings not condominiums but buildings that had condominiums in them factories where they made the go fast boats as well as the go fast boats you know planes trains Mm -hmm. and automobiles right it was just it was crazy the, the the staggering amount of money and then they owned a place called the bell gardens bicycle club and card casino in california and We ended up while uh, the marshal service ran it. I was getting a check for five hundred thousand dollars a month as our proceeds from running the place while the forfeiture action was going on. (laughs) I I think our group took credit, you know, in the in the forfeiture stats for about seven million dollars to run the place before we actually sold it for, you know.
0: I can just see DA administration going, hey, we don't need to close this case yet. I think maybe there's a couple (laughs) other things we got to do. Hey, daddy needs a new car. You know, we got to do some uh, training here. Oh, my God. But see, that's the interesting thing, too. You guys get the you guys are now taking over an operation and running it. And and that becomes a very how many other agencies can can lay claim to the fact is that you are revenue, not only revenue neutral, but you are you make money for the government far more than what it costs to operate you.
1: Only we were talking about jay gregorius before jay when he's working for me did a case on a guy named mandy fernandez in miami and uh there's a place i think it's still there on on bird road in miami called the collection and they did porsche ferrari and they're all high high uh dollar vehicles we take down the case and we seize the dealership and we you know we're running the dealership for a while and of course everybody had to sort of test drive the cars oh sure
0: (laughs) i could just see you out there one of you guys going hey what do i got to do to put you into a porsche today help me help you you know
1: yeah wow good times and and fun and uh and the beauty of being in a place like miami is you know the work was just as dangerous uh as it was in cleveland or someplace else but but you're operating at a different scale, right? These were now transnational drug traffickers. So Magluta and Falcone, as it turns out, Jimmy Capper and I connect back in those days, and there was a seizure in Silmar, California out there. was us um, see if I can get this right. It was 10,000 kilos of cocaine and $8 million in a storage place out there Protected by a
0: single master lock, we had Jimmy on to talk about the case. Everything you got, all of the stuff that, and it's got a master lock. That's the only protection it's got on the frickin' door.
1: Well, and that's Willie. We figured out that that was Willie Falcone and Sal Magluta's dope out there, and and you know that was. uh, So yeah, I mean, and and that's the other thing is this um, as competitive as. People can be about my case, my case. I think what I've seen over the years is the progression, um, of an organization that was all about who's going to get the credit to to one where collaboration and like, I can, we can all make everybody's cases better if we'll sit down and work this out and sort of the SOD story and, you know, coordinating among and between, you know, it's the, it's the story of the, the. The two bulls standing up on a hill. There's an old bull and a young bull. And the, I've told they this one down before. Look at all the cows. <laughs> you know, let's run down there and have sex with one of those cows. And the older bull says, "Let's walk and we'll take yeah. them all." That's, that's right.
0: <laughs> that's that's Kansas from boy logic. Let's slow down, Skippy. We got time here. Yeah, and we we also did an episode too with Derek Maltz. Derek Maltz, got We had Derek on. You know. Yeah. <laughs> what well, fun. Well, hey, all so collective. Yeah. So, what are you doing now? What keeps you busy these days?
1: Um, so I, um, I'm mostly retired now. I, uh, after I retired from DEA in 2010, I did a, about three and a half years with, um, consultancy Booz Allen Hamilton, which is a really good company, but I realized I I really didn't like consulting. Um, and I get a phone call from a friend of mine from the, the British embassy who's, you know, sort of my equivalent in the British embassy. And he calls and says, Hey mate, I don't know if you heard, but I, you know, this British bank HSBC uh, got in trouble with the Department of Justice and a and, little you bit know, of
0: money laundering. Yeah,
1: two billion dollar fine. Anyway, they uh, they're hiring me to help build this government relations thing, and I'm looking for somebody in the U.S. to you know engage. He said, "Do you know anybody?" I said, "Yeah, me. I'm tired of this consulting." <laughs> <thing."> <laughs> So I ended up going to work for, for them, and it, my my work on the government engagement side was really kind of short-lived. Uh, the guy who had previously ended up running FinCEN, the, the Financial uh, Crimes Enforcement Network, and then OFAC, the sanctions piece of the U.S. government, uh, Bob Werner, had gone to work for HSBC as well. And I get a call from Bob who tells us that the, the government... The government um, monitor, uh, you know, who is overlooking this thing had gone back to Mexico, which was ground zero for the the deferred prosecution agreement, uh, had done another inspection and and the bank in Mexico just was not making enough progress. And it was, it was at the point where the global CEO from HSBC was ready to sell the Mexican franchise of the bank and just be done with it. So uh, Werner calls me and says, you served it in Mexico with DEA, right? So, yeah. You still speak Spanish? Yeah. He says, I need to go pack your bags. This is another one of those you know, like I need you to just sort of help us out. Well, six years later I came back, right? It was uh, go down and rebuild all of the internal controls for the bank, you know, around money laundering and um and sanctions evasion. And and to be fair, they I mean, they they did get some enlightened leadership in there. And, uh, I was, it was a real job. It was a hard job. Um, but I was dealing with, you know, I I was on speed dial with the board of directors and dealt with CEOs of the various entities down there in Latin America on a daily basis. And, you know, I feel like I I did some good, you know, ironically in a city of 20 million people, the, the bank and the embassy are separated by two blocks. So I'm eating in the same restaurants with the same waiters that had been there you know, at, uh, <laughs> 10 years earlier. Hey, we know you. Yeah. Bienvenidos,
2: right. amigo.
0: <laughs> what? <laughs> Bienvenidos. Oh, welcome back. Welcome back, sir. We have your table for you over here. Yeah. God. And then, cool.
1: uh, and then most recently I, um, you know, in 2022, the, 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 um, pandemic is sort of reaches its And the, the bank is already out from under the DPA, the board of directors had asked me to stay on and actually manage the program for a couple of years after they did it to make sure they stayed out of trouble, which is fine. But by the end of 2022, we had come to a mutual agreement. They didn't want to pay the extraordinary sums they had to pay to keep an expat down there anymore. And I didn't want to stay in Mexico on a local contract. So I, I came back. Um... And then, uh, you know, this little thing called live golf started up and I got asked to come down and run security for their tournament down in Mayakoba this, this past year. And I was telling Murph before we started that, uh, you know, after 11, 16 hour days in a row to try and like herd the cats on this thing, I said, you know what, there's a reason why I'm retired. I, you know, I don't, I don't mind working hard, but like 11 16 hour days they're running me ragged here this is enough. life's too short man <laughs> yeah.
0: death is nature's way of telling you to slow down well that's that's an interesting story too because uh now with live golf and pga and what's it called drp or the other
1: um yeah that's yeah. the, the the uh european tour, european right.
0: yeah wow well man i'll tell you what <laughs>
1: Well, he's,
2: he's got a busy schedule now. He's, you know, you got the, uh, the tag group, the Ashburn group there in Northern Virginia that gets to lunch there and goes to lunch every month. You know, you yeah. got a plan for that. I still get the emails for that.
1: Yeah. yeah. I, I still play in a, a men's golf league and, uh, get some kayaking in. And my, my wife and I have, um, taken it up hiking. You know, I did a lot of, uh, hiking on the Appalachian trail as a kid, but. Uh, my wife got it in mind that we should do 52 hikes or average one a year, Uh one a week over the course of a year. And we knocked that out in 2022. We, we got in, I think it was 54, 55 hikes uh then. And wow. this year, we're going to take on the 4,000 footers up in New Hampshire, I hope, this summer. So
0: New Hampshire, New Hampshire. Wow. Yeah. I'm a
1: Massachusetts boy, so I got to go back, you know.
0: Mass- you got to go back to this. The Commonwealth of taxachusetts Yeah.
1: Yeah, exactly. <laughs> well,
0: <laughs> man, well this look, this is first of all this is us. People can't see this. us saluting you. Thank you for the work that you did protecting this great country, man. We, we got we have to we have to dive into one of these other stories later again, because there's so much to unpack, even with Falcone and Magluta and all the stuff they did and the stuff you were doing, uh, even down in Mexico and stuff like that. We just we're going to have to revisit this. Murph, you're going to have to get on it and start rescheduling well, some of these people or I'm going to have to I'm going to have to
1: demote you.
2: Well with Tony, I mean we didn't even get in you were the sack of New York City there for a while, right? With D E A. Yeah,
1: no, that was that was uh in, in many ways the high point of my career. I I did not want to leave and uh, you know, that well at many points in my career, you know like I I was not a volunteer, I was voluntold that yeah. I was being transferred and promoted or
0: and then to take to over the head, of,
1: the,
2: the head of the head DEA Intel and, and you know, meeting on a regular basis with the D- Director of National Intelligence and all the Intel other agencies and brought DEA actually into the Intel community. I mean, he, he's got so many more stories that we haven't even touched on today. We might have to bring you back, Tony.
0: We're going to have to do this in a skiff, too. So we'll, we'll have to. Uh, <laughs> Some <we'll have> of <laughs> the do stories are actually true, too. <laughs> 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 uh. Well, man. Well, this is look seriously. This is us saluting you. I know we got more stories. We're going to have to have you back. So, Murph, you're on the hook now. Reschedule or okay. schedule another brother. one. We'll, we'll get we'll get another set of stories out of you, Mr. Trump. You
2: can't slide, you know. I have the I have the master list up here, brother, and you were on there again. Sorry. Yeah. <laughs> All right.
1: Well, listen. It's, <laughs> it's been fun. I really enjoyed it, Morgan Murph. It's uh, uh, thanks for what you're doing, uh, and it's it's been a fun trip down memory lane.
0: Yeah. All we do is no. we tell stories, stories of like, you, you, you tell the story, we just simply host you. So we thank you. Absolutely.
2: honor to have you on here, Tony. Thank you very much. Good to see you again, brother.
0: All right. Don't go anywhere, Tony or Murph. Everybody hold on. And the rest of you guys stay tuned for the debrief. Well, told you, Murph. That is one intelligent dude working in intelligence, you know, but he apparently he wasn't on your selection board.
2: <laughs> Actually, I think well, no, when you get promoted to SES, it's up to the administrator. They don't they probably did talk to Tony. Um, this is a guy though. He was like uh, remember we had Jimmy Capron here? Yep. He was uh he was chief of domestic operations in DEA headquarters. This is a guy that you know, we've had some challenging administrators in the Drug Enforcement Administration. Some, most don't come up through the ranks. Most, most are appointed by the Attorney General or the President. Uh, actually, they're appointed by the President The Attorney General oversees them. But uh, they're the kind of guys that they go in and they get their butts chewed out by, you know, we call administrators temp employees because they come and go with as the Presidential Administration changes. And they get their butts chewed and then they'll come to an all-hands meeting with a smile on their face and you'll never know what just happened because that's, they see that that's their job to take that. It's not your job to, to have to suffer from that. So Tony's one of those guys, just have the utmost respect. Uh, we didn't talk about his life after DEA, but he was in high demand internationally. And uh, I think now he told us he's uh, enjoying doing some hiking with his wife. Uh, looks like he's in great shape. Just an honor to have the man on here. So Tony, thank you, brother. Thank you so much for being on the show.
0: Tony Plagido.
2: <laughs> Placido.
0: Claudio. Tony,
2: Tony I'm, he doesn't live that far from you. He's an Ashburn. <laughs> you're in Chantilly. Wait, so. wait.
0: Yeah, just listen to the episode. Anyway, guys, we hope you enjoyed <laughs> that. Hit those five stars. Go over to Apple and Spotify. Uh, we don't. It's magic. We don't know how it works, but it does. Hey, guys, as we told you maybe last time, but Stitcher is going away. So if you're listening on Stitcher, transition to another platform uh, apple spotify you know y- you name it iHeartRadio, radio whatever it is you listen to amazon uh but stitcher will be going away i believe in august or september so I'll make that transition now head on over to game of crimes podcast for more information about the show we'll update it as we go along our uh as we have merch as we add more books and stuff follow us on that thing they call social media at game of crimes on twitter game of crimes on podcast on facebook and the instagram also hit our game of crimes fans page run by sandy salvato with the velvet glove just answer a couple questions get in there uh, but also just got to go to patreon patreon.com slash game of crimes we've got our q a coming out which will be out on the 10th uh, we've got uh, you can't make this shit up which comes out mid-month uh we've got all sorts of different things different stuff for different people and murph i was, i don't know if i told you this but we had some people ask but we will be starting in august uh for you patreon folks Um, if you are at the warden of the throne level, you're going to get access to all of our episodes without commercials. cool! we're going to be releasing that. So you get episode. And then if you are at guardian of the realm, which is our second highest level, you get every other episode without commercials. So we wanted to find a way to differentiate from those people. We enjoy all your support, but the more you support us, the more we do for you. So, uh, that's the way we'll be doing it. If you're at evil is coming, uh, you might want to think about upgrading to guardian of the realm. You know, there you go. it's, there you-,
2: you know, it's amazing. We go out on these speaking tours and it's, um, I'm just shocked at how many people come up and say, I love your show or you, I'll get a text message or I'll get an email or an Instagram or, you know, all that social media junk that I don't know a whole lot about, but uh, thank you so much for your support. It just, it keeps us motivated. It keeps us moving forward here. And, and uh, we just got some guests that come and that. Mm -mm -mm. Well, I think we're going to knock your socks off this year. As
0: soon as we get one in the bank, I was telling Murph, as soon as we get it recorded and done, and I know we have it, then uh, we've got something really special we're going to tell you about. So that being said, let's bring this to a close, Murph. And we want to tell everybody, thank you for being uh listening to us thank you if you're a patreon member if not go join patreon.com slash game of crimes but the biggest thank of all thank you folks to our players out there thank you for playing the biggest baddest most dangerous game of all the game of crimes